Man, that is so, so awesome. That is awesome. So what we just witnessed is Chad's personal identification with the greatest act in human history, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here at Crossroads, we don't believe that baptism saves you. Salvation is by faith alone. But what your baptism represents is your faith testimony, your story of how you are leaving your old life behind and following Jesus in new life. And so if you're a believer here today or online and you have not been baptized, I would encourage you to take that step of faith. If you have questions about baptism and if you want to get baptized, we are ready to baptize you. And so whether you have questions or you're ready to get baptized, we would encourage you to simply text the word next to the number on the screen. And as a part of that, we have somebody here on staff whose primary job is to help people walk through baptism. And so if that's you, today and you're ready to get baptized, we would love to have that conversation with you, all right? Well, I want to welcome you here today at Thornton as well as Fort Lupton, those of you joining us at Crossroads Live, Facebook, and YouTube. It is a privilege to be here to be able to open God's Word. And if we haven't had the opportunity to meet, my name is Matt Manning. I'm the senior pastor uh, here at Crossroads Church, and I get the privilege today of opening God's Word with you as we continue our series. Uh, We are week four of a five-week series that we're calling I Can't Believe in a God who, where we're taking on the objections, the issues, the struggles that we have when it comes to putting our faith in God. That every week we've said the same thing, that we know that when we come together in a group this size, and and those of you who are watching online at home, that there is a number of us who are here today who, who maybe would say, I don't actually believe in God. And as we would ask of, of why is it that you have your list, you have your list of why you don't believe in God. And, and maybe you've lived some life, maybe you've read some of the Bible and those things that you've experienced, those things that you've read have led you to the place where you just say, hey, look, you know what? I don't know that I can believe in a God and you have your list. There's others of you who are here and you would say, that's not me, I actually believe that I've trusted Jesus as my savior, that I've done the baptism thing, that I've walking with God. But as I've read the Bible, as I've lived life, there's been these moments where, where it's like I don't understand and there's some, this like wedge that's drived into my relationship with God. And it's not that I don't believe because I do, but because of these things, it's just created a struggle in my life as I try to walk with God. If you are in either of those two groups, then the good news for you is that this series is exactly for you. That when anyone says, I can't believe in a God who, what follows is is a number, hundreds of objections that have been placed over thousands of years. Now, over five weeks, of course, we could not address every single one of those topics. And so what we've done is said, what are the most common objections that we hear from intelligent people? Let's do a series on that. And so if you've been with us since the very beginning of Easter on week one, we've just walked through these objections. The first objection was this, is that I can't believe in a God who allows suffering in this world. In other words, if there is an all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful God, then why do people suffer? Why do bad things happen? That's a legitimate objection. That's a fair question. We believe that there's a good answer to that. Week two, we looked at, I can't believe in a God who doesn't answer my prayers. I mean, every single one of us at one point or another that we've been on our knees pleading, begging, praying earnestly before God. And those prayers are just met with deafening silence. What's that all about? We addressed that week two. Last week, Pastor Chris came and brought the objection. I can't believe in a God who I don't need. Maybe you're somewhere in your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, and you're looking at your life and you're going, man, I've made it this far. Like, I'm doing okay. What do I need God for? 
This week, we're taking on the objection, I can't believe in a God whose followers and even its leaders are hypocrites. Next week, we're going to wrap this all up as Pastor Jared closes us off with, I can't believe in a God who says that there's only one way to heaven. That these are just a few of the objections that intelligent people have had through the years, even the centuries, when it comes to putting faith in God. And today, like I said, we're going to cover the objection, I can't believe in a God whose followers, even its leaders, are hypocrites. And again, this is a legitimate, this is a legitimate objection. There's very rarely a week that goes by where I don't hear someone say or where I don't see on social media something to the effect of why are Christians such hypocrites? In fact, this week on social media, I saw a meme come across my feed and it said this, that maybe you wouldn't have to tell me that you're a Christian all the time if you acted like one some of the time. (laughs) That hurts, doesn't it? And yet the reality is, is that we've all lived our lives and we've seen influential Christian leaders preach powerful messages on the weekends and yet come to find out that their lives are revealed, this double life is revealed, where they're, where they're involved in, in sexual sin. I mean, it's so rampant and common these days, I don't even have to name names, you know them, you've seen the news. That we've all known Christian people who, who, who come against the, the vulgarity of our culture and yet spew racism from their mouths that maybe you grew up knowing someone who you loved and respected because of the way that they lived their lives in church only to find out when you grew up that their lives during the week were devastated because of alcohol. That we've all worked for Christian men and women who espoused tendencies like honesty and integrity, those values, and yet cheated on their taxes and cut corners in their business and were just lazy at their jobs. That every single one of us have seen politicians on both sides of the aisles proclaim to be believers and use scripture to tout whatever agenda they're peddling next. And the truth of the matter is this, is after a while, after you see inconsistent, after inconsistent Christian, a person who does one thing, or says one thing and then does another, all the while knowing that it's wrong, but puts up a front anyways, it drives you to the point where you say, I I don't know, I don't know if I can believe in a God whose followers act this way whose followers are hypocrites. I mean, listen, hypocrisy is a problem. Hypocrisy is a challenge. And as believers, it stings a bit, doesn't it? There's, there's a part of us that wants to like defend it and, and the yeah buts. But the reality is, is that we are, I am. I mean, you can ask anyone who, who knows me well that there are points in my life where I don't always hold to the standard that I'm too when it comes to this book. I mean, even as a Christian leader, I'm not always slow to judge. In fact, I'm rather quick to judge. And I'm quick to anger. I mean, the red in this beard is a telltale sign of how hot it burns sometimes. Like, I fit the stereotype. And years ago, years ago, I gave up golf because I realized that I'm least like Jesus when I'm on those pristine fairways. Like, like, I don't have to pay to sin. I can do that for free all by myself. Like, like that's where it comes when it comes to, to golf. And yet the truth of the reality is this, is that when it comes to people today in our culture and in our community, the truthfulness of God is seriously undermined by the failures of Christians, isn't it? By the failures of the church, by the failures of, 
of Christian institutions, in the way in which we live, or at least the way that we say we live, and how it's inconsistent with what we teach. Hypocrisy is a challenge. There's an author out there, his name is Christopher Hitchinson, not a believer, he wrote a book called God Is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And in his book, here's what he basically concludes, that people who believe that they have absolute truth necessarily begin to feel superior to those who believe differently. And this invitably leads to oppression and injustice. And looking throughout history, it doesn't seem like he's entirely wrong, does it? From the Christian crusades of the Middle Ages to our civil war, to the latest controversies around the Catholic Church or the Southern Baptist denomination. His answer when it comes to hypocrisy and oppression and injustice in this world is just to get rid of all religion. And maybe you're here today, maybe you're listening at home today, and that's where you're sitting, saying, look, I I just can't believe in a God whose followers are hypocrites. Just, Just get rid, just throw that God out. However, when it comes to this, I don't think that absolute truth is the problem, and I don't think you think it is either. That absolute truth isn't the problem, it's people and the way that they use that truth for their own personal gain, that's the problem. See, when it comes to this objection that I can't believe in a God whose followers are hypocrites, that statement isn't actually the primary issue. It may be the way that you say it, it may be what you believe, but it's not actually the primary issue. See, the primary issue is this, is that somewhere along the way, you were taught, you were told by someone like me, you assumed that coming to Jesus meant living a perfect life. That is to say that when someone trusts Jesus, that all of a sudden they go from a sinner with all kinds of problems to perfect and faultless. And so when a Christian who's supposed to be perfect and faultless does something or says something dumb or ugly or mean-spirited or hurtful, you go, what's the deal? Like, like I thought that you were supposed to be perfect. I thought you were supposed to be different. I thought you were supposed to be like all holy. And while I wish that perfection came in this life, it's not part of the deal. That's not actually the gospel story. So if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 18. It's where we're going to be today. And in Luke chapter 18, we come into the middle of a conversation that Jesus is having with a group of guys called the Pharisees. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Pharisees, just know that the Pharisees are like this religious sect of powerful priests who had quite a bit of power politically when it came to the Jewish culture. And that as we open the New Testament, oftentimes what we see of these religious leaders, these Pharisees, is that the way that the New Testament describes them is as like self-righteous. They were very self-righteous. They were smug in the way that they carried themselves. In fact, a number of times through the gospel, Jesus actually calls them hypocrites. He calls them hypocrites. Now, these group of guys come up to Jesus and they basically ask him a question about the kingdom of God. They're asking him this question about eternity, about heaven. 
Now, when they asked Jesus this question, it was totally a trap. That every time the Pharisees got together with Jesus, it was to try to trick him into saying something that would get him in trouble. Now, it never happened, but it wasn't because of effort. Like the Pharisees, they tried and they tried. It just never worked out for them. So that's what's going on here. And during this conversation about the kingdom of God, this powwow in the conversation turns actually to a question about righteousness. Like this, like, like how righteous does one have to be? Like how together does your life actually have to be? How good do you have to be to taste eternity? To experience heaven? And Jesus answers that question with a story or what he calls a parable in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse nine. He also told him this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes on all that I have. Now Jesus begins answering this question with this fictitious story about a Pharisee, but let's be real, this isn't all that fictitious. This is the way the Pharisees acted all the time. And Jesus goes, let's say that there's this Pharisee who comes up to the temple to pray. That's where everybody prayed. And the way that he prayed is the way that he would always pray, that he would stand and that he would speak in such a way that everyone around him could hear. And as he's praying, he begins to to list off this theoretical list of what he's not like, that he's righteous, that he's as close to perfect as one can get. And as he's praying through this theoretical list, in the corner of his eye, he sees this tax collector. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the scriptures... When it comes to the tax collector, the tax collector was a special class in Jewish culture. That oftentimes in the New Testament, we read the phrase that we'll see the phrase tax collectors and sinners. And the reason that we see it so many times in the New Testament is because in the Jewish culture, there were sinners, regular sinners, and then you had the tax collectors. See, to be a tax collector was to be a traitor. Tax collectors were Jewish people who went and worked for Rome. And every Jewish boy and girl grew up knowing that Rome was the enemy, that Rome was the oppressor of God's people. And to be a tax collector meant that you were a Jew who willingly went and worked for the enemy, that you were a Benedict Arnold, that you were a traitor, that you weren't just a sinner, you were the worst kind of sinner. And here's this Pharisee praying his prayer to God in all of his self-righteousness, in all of the smugness that he can muster. And he sees this tax collector out of the corner of his eyes and the ugliness of his, eye, of his heart shows forth. And he goes, God, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. That I'm not like that guy over there whose life is a mess. I thank you for my righteousness, my self-righteousness, that I'm as perfect as you can get. Jesus goes on, verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but it beat his chest saying, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. The contrast in the story that Jesus is painting is stark, isn't it? On one side, you have this man, this religious leader, this self-righteous man 
thanking God that his life's all together, that he's near perfect, compared to the scumbag trader, head bowed, not even able to look to heaven as he pounds his chest, begging for God's mercy, admitting that he doesn't have it all together. And I imagine in this part of the conversation that Jesus looks at the group of guys he's hanging with here and he says, boys, let me ask you the question, who's gonna taste eternity when it comes to these two? And for the Pharisees that are standing with Jesus, they're like, Jesus, this isn't even a question. We know the answer to this one. It's the guy who has his life together. It's the guy who looks like he's got it going on. It's the guy who's like us. It's the Pharisee Jesus. And Jesus answers them in this way. I tell you, this man, meaning the tax collector, went down to his house justified, redeemed, saved on this day, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, Jesus looks at this group of boys and he says, come on guys, I need you to know that I can't stomach religious showmanship. But anyone who admits that they don't have their life altogether, who comes and says, I need help, save me, redeem me, change me, then my answer to them is always yes. Because Jesus didn't come for those who appear to be righteous. He didn't come for those who think that they had their lives all together. He came for sinners. Jesus time and time again says, I didn't come for those who look healthy on the outside, that I came for those who knew that they were sick on the inside. And he has no tolerance for the show, but unlimited grace for a sinner who owns up to the damage that he's caused with the decisions in his or her's life. See, in this story, Jesus paints the picture for us of what it means to follow him. He says, look, my followers, my followers are men and women. They're women, men, women who admit that they're sinners, that they're self-absorbed and full of pride, who realize that they don't blame others for the relational damage that their decisions have caused. And the way of faith the way of the scripture calls you to live perfectly, perfectly before an all holy God. And yet at the same time, the very same time, the very same time acknowledges that you can't or won't be able to do it. See the story, the good story, the good news of the gospel is for inconsistent people that Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And unlike all other religious systems and belief systems, Christianity acknowledges that you cannot be perfect and at the same time points to the one who was perfect in your place. That's the story of the gospel. So during Jesus's life, anytime, anytime, he spoke about hypocrisy. He used the same Greek word, and the Greek word is hypocritas. Hypocritas. And hypocritas is where we get our word hypocrisy. And it simply means, literally, it means an actor or a, or a show player. That's what hypocritas means. If you've ever seen a Greek play, literally, the hypocrites is the mask that they wear. That's what the hypocrites is. Now, for those of us 
who are believers in this room and online, who've been taught that following Jesus means that we have to have our life together, that our lives have to be perfect, this is what we do. We put on our mask. And we go into the world and we say things like, don't drink, don't smoke, don't have sex, be honest, have integrity. And then behind the scenes, when our mask comes off, it reveals the addictions and the sins that plague our lives. We put on the mask and we preach things like, like build one another up, love each other, don't judge, while at the same time, we say, thank God that I'm not like that person over there. Did you see what she wore to church today? Jesus did not call us to this kind of life. That Jesus did not call us to the life of the Pharisee. He does not condone or tolerate two-faced religion because faith in Jesus does not produce believers who are casual about their sin, but rather believers who self-examine, striving gradually to become like their Savior, little by little becoming like Jesus. Jesus taught that his followers are like the tax collectors. Someone who knows that they don't have their life all together. Someone who's willing to put down the hypocrites of their life. To stop hiding who they really are. Someone who has the courage to admit that they don't have life all figured out. Someone who has the courage to admit that they need help becoming the man that Jesus is calling them to be. And Jesus looks at us some 2,000 years later and goes, take off the mask. Take the mask off. You're not perfect. You're a sinner in need of grace. So if you're here today and you're saying, I can't believe in a God whose followers are hypocrites, I just want to apologize if someone like me taught you that Christians are perfect and have their lives together because we don't. And I want to apologize because there's far too many of us believers running around with our masks on, pretending to have our life all together, all the while hurting people and destroying the good story of the gospel. See, if you want to be a part of a community that admits that we don't have it all together, that admits that we need help, who seeks forgiveness when we fail, then you're welcome here. If you're here today tired, of trying to put your life together to be perfect in order to come to God, then this is your day. Because God did not come into this world for perfect people. He came into this world for those who are sinners, who know that their life isn't all together. If you would like to have that kind of relationship, if you would like to be a part of that kind of community, you can simply text the word Jesus to the number on the screen. Would you pray with me, Father? Lord, here we are as a community. Lord, with our arms open. Lord, tired of pretending that we have our lives together, tired of wearing the masks. And Lord, as our arms are wide open, Lord, we look to you 
Go ahead and take all of me. Knowing that as we say that, that there's ugliness and not a lot of beauty at times. But Lord, we, we come to you not because of our beauty, not because we have life together, but because we're sinners admitting that we don't. And so God, I pray that you would show us grace on this day. Lord, that as we, as we step into your presence, Lord, that we would know your mercy. And Father, I pray, Lord, that as a community, that we would be able to take off our masks. Lord, that we would have the courage to show people that we don't have it all together. And Lord, that we would realize that the mask that we wear, Lord, is hurting people in this world, that the mask that we wear, Lord, hurts the gospel story. And so God, help us throw those away. Help us be true to ourselves. Help us live a life that you're calling us to live. Your righteousness, not our own. Your grace and your mercy. And in doing so, Lord, we can become more like you. And it's your glory that's shown in this world, not ours. And so, Lord, I pray that that would be true of us. Lord, I pray for those of you that are here today. Lord, who you're whispering to their hearts and into their souls. Lord, who have been trying for years to get their life to a point where they're good enough for you that, Lord, today they would understand. Lord, it's never been about our self-righteousness. Lord, it's always about the grace and the mercy and the righteousness that you give to us. Lord, speak to them in this place now. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Oftentimes, in the first or every weekend, we take communion together. And before we do that today, what I want to do is I want to give you just a few moments. Because my guess is, is that as we talk about taking the mask off, that maybe you've been wearing a mask for a while. That you've been showing yourself to be one way and the reality is, is that you're someone else behind the scenes. And so I just want to give a moment of quietness for you to examine your own heart before we participate in communion together. Jesus, in those last moments before he went to the cross, took the bread and he broke it. He took the wine and he lifted it and he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And as we participate today, what we're saying is that we surrender to you. We surrender our lives to you. We admit that we are a sinner in need of your sacrifice. And so today, we remember the great love that Jesus showed us on the cross. And we drink together. As we continue our worship and singing, and at any moment over the next 20 minutes or so, if you need prayer, we would love to pray for you online. Just click the button at Fort Lupton here at Thornton. You can just make your way 
towards the back. We have people who are ready to pray alongside you. Would you go ahead and stand as we sing together?